Well, hey, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good? That was a great time of worship, wasn't it? It's amazing. Um, I was reminded just when we were singing that song earlier, Glory to Glory, that the first time we sang that song at our church was at Camp Harvest five years ago, and that was been a powerful song over the years, and I know I already got a video, but I'm just going to plug again. Camp Harvest, pray for us, because God's going to do amazing work in a few days, and if you're a high schooler in the room, which I know these guys are going to camp, but if you're a high schooler in the room or you're a, you, you have a high schooler in your life, get them to camp because God does amazing work in just a few days. And so we're expecting for that. But God does amazing work every week when we gather, doesn't he? We believe that. And so let's open his word, uh, expecting God to speak and move in our hearts. So you can open your Bible to Luke chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible with you, the ushers are coming forward. And you can just raise your hand. They'll get a copy so you can follow along with us. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can go ahead and keep that one. And once you get that Bible in your hands, everyone are going to be open to Luke 10, and we'll jump in there in a second. And if you don't already know from the reference, uh, but we're, we've, we just started going through a series of parables, which are stories that Jesus told to illustrate uh, a life situation, a point, and really to confront the hearts of people. And so we're going to see how Jesus uses these stories to confront the hearts of people in his word, but also be confronted ourselves. And today we're looking at a really familiar one. The Good Samaritan. Is anyone familiar with that story? A little bit? Probably a lot of us. And what happens is a lot of times with stories or passages that are really familiar with us, we kind of just check out. We're like, I got that one down. I had that in Sunday school when I was really young. Um, but what's important is a lot of times with those familiar stories, sometimes we miss out on what the point is. We don't quite understand what they're saying, and we miss out too what it means for our lives. And so I would just ask of you, the Good Samaritan, a really familiar story, that you would just come approaching it with open ears and open hearts for God to speak. Uh, and if you're willing to do that, to set aside the familiarity and lean into the, this message, would you just raise your hand again, if you're willing to do that? Okay. Now I know who to really preach to, the people who didn't raise their hands. Those are the ones we're going for. Um, but all right, so I want to open today's message by telling you a story about this guy named Karl Marx. Is anyone familiar with him? Um, I, I came across his story in a commentary I was reading about this passage. They told his story, and I just found it super interesting. First of all, he's a very great-looking human being. I mean, beard goals, um, like the different colors. That's almost like an ombre, isn't it? Um, but uh, Karl Marx, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with him, he was a philosopher and a politician in the 1800s who really was one of the first people to kind of push forward this uh, ideology of communism and socialism. And, um, and, and so he was like the self-proclaimed defender of working class people, of the average man. But what's interesting in, in a historical study of his life, it's, it's been found that he never set foot in a factory, in a mill, in an industrial place. He didn't go to the places that regular people were. And in fact, he, uh, he never had a relationship with any, any working class average people called the proletariat. He only hung out with uh, upper middle class people who were just like him called the bourgeois. Is there any better name for people who think highly of themselves? It's perfect. Bourgeois. Turn to your neighbor and say bourgeois. Just because you wanted to say it. It's the 11... We're a little loose. We had to go for it. And so I just find that ironic that Karl Marx, this guy whose ideology is all about like equality among all people, like there shouldn't be this class tier system. We should all just kind of help each other out and be on, on level ground that, that he didn't even live that out himself. He, he liked the idea of a society that, that cared and loved people equally, but he didn't care 
for people or love them. So much so that, uh, like I said, he only hung out with people like him, but even the people he did associate with, his friends, family, people in business, he didn't really like any of them and he fought constantly with them. So much so that to the point when he passed away at his funeral, it's estimated that there were between nine to 11 people in attendance. Pretty sad, right? Like, a, he's, he was alone. And I tell you this story because that's kind of sad. This, this guy died alone with no one. But honestly, it's, it's pretty ironic and kind of funny that he would say that his ideology is this, but not live it at all. Live for himself and his benefit while saying that he cared and loved for people. And I, I, I say that because as Christians, it's easy for us to live in a similar way. To say that we believe that we love God and we believe in loving other people but to not actually have loving of people evidenced in our lives. And in the Bible, there's a direct link between your love for God and your love for other people. We see this so many places, and we're going to see it in Luke 10, but we see it in the Ten Commandments. When God gave through Moses ten things for his people to, to live by primarily, what's interesting is the first four are about loving God, right? You shall love no other gods besides uh, the Lord. You should have no idols. But then the, the last six all have to deal with loving people because there's a direct, direct link between loving God and loving people because love for God, it's, it's difficult to see, right? You can't, can't see someone's love for God. Maybe you can see them being responsive in worship or praying or getting the word, but it's hard to see those things. But loving love for people, that's observable. It's on display, and the way that we love people is a key indicator for our health and the depth of our relationship with the Lord. And, and so as we come to Luke 10 this morning, and we're going to confront the ways in which our love for God is not leading to love for people. I want us to consider that today. But this is our big idea if you're taking notes. Compassion is a dangerous road worth traveling. Compassion is a dangerous road worth traveling. This is the message of the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a familiar story, but let's look at the story with fresh eyes and open hearts, believing that God's living and active word will move in our hearts and reveal to us what it looks like to make the journey down this road of compassion ourselves. So read with me in Luke 10, verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And what's funny is this is the exact same question that the rich young ruler in Luke 18 asked Jesus. We studied that passage about a month ago. And the rich young ruler came and asked, what should I do to in, uh, inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus said, keep the law, follow the rules. And the rich young ruler said, I have. Then Jesus said, okay, go and sell everything, all your possessions, and then you'll have eternal life. And the rich young ruler walked away uh, uh, sad and depressed and without hope because he wasn't willing to do it. Because what Jesus was doing in that moment with his answer to the question was revealing the, the rich young ruler's heart. That wealth was his God. That he loved wealth more than he loved God. And so similarly here we're going to see how Jesus answers the lawyer's question to confront his heart. That the answer to this question is what, what, what do you love? Do you love the Lord or do you love other things? And so in verse 26 the lawyer said to him, or Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus answers his question with a question. Don't you love when people do that? Answer a question with a question? Like probably some of you at the end of this service, your spouse will turn to you and say, hey, where, where should we go to lunch? 
and they'll say, where should we go to lunch? They'll just ask it right back. And then you'll just be in a never-ending cycle until it's 2 p.m. and you're both hangry and it becomes this massive fight and your week is ruined. It's like, we were just at church. What's the problem? But we do that sometimes. We answer a question with a question because we want to like put the responsibility and put the ball back in their court. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to draw out his heart and, and put the ball back in his court, his responsibility, reveal his heart. And um, if you know lawyers, you know that they know the law. They love to explain the law. It's what we pay them uh, quite a bit of money for. They're pretty good at it. They love to do it. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you know, lawyer, explain to me the law. Show me what's up. And so in verse 27... Um, we're going to see that what Jesus is going for is more for, hey, lawyer, do you have the right knowledge? Do you have the right head knowledge? But, but where's, your, where's your heart at? It's more than just understanding. And so verse 27, the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. So Jesus says to the Lord, he's like, I know you know the right answer. Like, good job. You answered correctly. But this is more than just do you know. It's are you living this? Are you practicing what you're preaching? What Jesus is exposing in the lawyer and what he wants to expose in us is that understanding is different than believing. That we can understand something or say that we believe it, but are we really living it? Um, because what we believe in our hearts should drive us to action. And I just want to make it clear, just in case it isn't to you, what Jesus isn't saying here is that by loving your neighbor and doing things that you're saving yourself. What Jesus is saying is that if you have a relationship with God, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've received his love, then you will love others. That loving others is the response of someone who loves God and has received his love. You just need to know that because it's not loving your neighbor will save us. It's the response of a saved person. And, um, and, and that's the mandate that Jesus is saying. Hey, if you're going to follow me, the mandate is love your neighbor. You, you can write that down if you're taking notes. That's really the message of the story. Love your neighbor. Because God loves you and you love God, it leads to love for others. And so the lawyer is here. He's exposed. Maybe he's convicted. Maybe you're already convicted by this message. You're like, I know this is coming from me and my lack of love for people. And so he feels the need to justify himself why he's not loving people. And so in verse 29, it says, he, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And he asks this question because he expects Jesus to answer, uh, hey, your friends, your family, the Israelites, your, your people, um, and those are your neighbors. Because then the lawyer could go, I'm doing that. I'm loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm loving my neighbors because those are my neighbors. But what Jesus is about to, to do right here is to challenge his view of what a neighbor is. And to radically challenge even us today who we consider to be our neighbor. And he uses a parable, a story, to illustrate this point. Who is our neighbor? What does it look like to be a good neighbor? So read with me in verse 30 as we start this parable. So Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. It's just important to know that this is a real road in, in Israel from Jerusalem to Jericho, 17 miles long. And across this road, it actually dipped down 300 feet. And so this is just really cool because the Israelites would... They, they know this road. They're familiar with it. They're drawn into the story and the severity and the danger of the road. 
like it's going down, it's almost a picture of going down into some like dark, dangerous place that you wouldn't want to find yourself. Like I can't help but think of, if you're familiar with Chicago, Lower Wacker Drive, just not a place that you want to be. And that's this picture that he's painting for the people. Like this guy is in a place where it's dangerous and he's traveling down the road. So verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Isn't that how opportunities to be compassionate and generous happen? They just, they just happen. It's not something that we can plan. It's not something that we can put on the calendar. Oftentimes, opportunities to be compassionate just present themselves. And in that moment, what's our response? Are we going to rush in and, and respond compassionately or like the priest, avoid the situation? See, priests, uh, back in that time, we know are the, the main representative between man and God. The way that the Israelites would relate and connect with God was often through the priests, through sacrifices, through attending the temple. And so we would expect that the priest would be the exact person to come and help this guy, but he doesn't. And what I, what I love about this, that it's a priest, is that the book of First Peter says, every follower of Jesus, you are a royal priesthood. And so when it talks about this priest, this is you and me. How would we respond to this situation when we're confronted. So I want us to consider not just reasons why the priest might have avoided uh, the compassion, not just why, why did the priest cross the road, that wasn't like a setup for a cheesy joke, but reasons why we would avoid the road of compassion just like the priest. Um, so the first reason we avoid the road of compassion is fear. We avoid the road of compassion because we're afraid of what's gonna happen or we don't know what's going to happen. Like going back to the situation, it's a dangerous road. Like you just want to go through it really fast. This guy on the side of the road, he's a stranger. Who knows, I could go and help him and he, he could come attack me. The robbers could be hiding and just waiting for the next victim to come and try and help this guy. And similarly, you and me, we respond with something like, I just don't have a peace about it. And so I'm going to not do it. And, and, and we have fear towards things that God provides and opportunities to love and care for people but we just let our fear well up and, and avoid the opportunity. That God's word says perfect love casts out fear. So if we aim to express the love of Jesus to the world, then we set aside our fear. But so often we let that be an excuse to avoid compassion. The second uh, reason we avoid the road of compassion is self-righteousness. That the priest is someone who's considered holy, righteous. He has a good reputation. Like, he's a pretty smart guy, and so maybe he's thinking in the back of his head, whatever happened to this guy to get him to this spot, he probably deserved it. He had it coming. He should have known better. And so often we do this. Like, you're, you're the product of your choices, and, and we judge the motives of people's heart when they need our help and compassion. See, God doesn't call us to judge why someone got to the situation. He calls us to recognize someone in need. And, and to rush towards the opportunity to be compassionate. The third reason we avoid the road of compassion is inconvenience. This is huge for us. But for the priest, see if the priest were to get just within six feet of this guy, or even touch and help him, immediately he'd be deemed by the law ritualistically unclean. So he'd have to go all the way back to Jerusalem and go through these rites of purification, which would take him seven days to be purified again. So there's a great cost to his compassion if he were to help. Time and money. 
and, and, and all these different things. And, and know that, that compassion and generosity always come at a cost. We're always going to be inconvenienced by its nature. Not thinking about ourselves, our needs, our wants, and thinking about someone else is inconvenient. That doesn't come natural to us. And so we just see the inconvenience and we avoid the road. And and then the last reason we avoid the road of compassion is I don't care. Lacking empathy, just not caring about other people. Some of us can be honest that we, we, we feel that way even as we hear the story. In 2014, uh, Psychology Today uh, published this study uh, done by the University of Michigan, our, our home people. And so this Dr. Axon, he found these results that college students in 2014 were 40% less empathetic than college students 10 years earlier. Now, I don't know how you measure empathy, I guess, but what I do know is this is bad news for me because in 2014, I was a college student. So that means that I'm less empathetic than those before me. No, but I think sometimes when we look at stuff like this, it's easy to point the finger at young people and be like, oh, millennials, blah, young people, they're the problem, they're the worst. But the truth is, this isn't us problem. It's all of us. It's as a society, we're becoming people who care less about other people and only care about ourselves. And I believe this because of the reasons this study found that those college students were less empathetic. The first reason is screen time. Smartphones, tablets, laptops, TVs, sound familiar? This is an us problem, that all of us are spending more and more time just staring at a screen and amusing ourselves to death. That the second reason that people are less empathetic is because of information overload. Would you guys say that there's a little bit of information on the internet? A little bit? And so we've got apps and notifications and texts and emails and Facebook and Instagram and all these things coming at us and all this information, all these articles, think piece, all these different things. And we only have so much information that we can take in. And so we just choose the information that we care about and anything that's not that, it's just gone. I I don't care about it. I only care about what I care about. We've only got room for so much. And so we've got limited ability to care for other people because of information overload. And then the third reason is because of virtual reality. And I'm not talking about like VR, like goggles you put on and it seems like real life. I'm talking about this idea that more and more of our interaction with other humans happens not physically and face to face, but it happens through a screen. It happens through a means of communication. It's not happening face to face. And so the more and more we do that, we're detached from the physical. And so all these things add up together to say that as a society, we are becoming a people who have less ability to feel deeply to just deeply sit and stew in our feelings and and understand and feel what other people are feeling. And so we may not be able to assign the priest's motives. Like, I don't know exactly why the priest avoided the guy. I think that those are some pretty good options for why. But we can consider for ourselves, what are the reasons we often do? We often avoid the opportunity to love and care for people. But we do know the priest crossed the street away from the man in need, just like this next guy, verse 32. It says, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Here the the text implies that he came a little closer. He came to the place where he was. He kind of looked at him, considered a little more, but didn't think to help him. And so this Levite, he's he's like a junior varsity priest, or like a youth pastor, not a real pastor, you know? I don't feel that way, but you'd be surprised by the amount of times people say stuff like that. It's all good. It's all good. 
So it just it, the Levites there, the JV priest, the youth pastor, you could just picture me walking by. And maybe I'm walking up and I, and I don't do it. And one of the reasons is, is just before me, I saw my boss, Cal, the priest. He walked up and he didn't help him either. And so I'm like, my boss didn't help him. Why would I help him? It's kind of funny if you picture that. But the truth is this, that generosity and compassion, those are things that aren't taught, but they're caught. And, and so in that situation, it's like the, the Levite didn't do it because the priest didn't do it. Because by the way that we are compassionate and loving or those before us have been, we are the same. Or the lack of compassion and generosity. But we'll get more into that later. So we got the bad guys. Let's get to the good guy. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now the crowd listening, this would have been an unexpected turn in the story. Like we know a lot of times when we're watching movies exactly how they're going to end especially if they're like a Disney film. But sometimes you get like a Sixth Sense or, you know, Inception or something like that where there's like a twist ending. And, and that's exactly what this is here. Like Jesus is trying to get them out of the narratives that they're used to hearing um, to get their attention and to help them receive this. And, and it's unexpected because Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Samaritans were viewed as second-rate Jewish people, um, they had interwed with Assyrians and other foreign people, and so Jewish people just kind of looked down upon them. And quite honestly, Sumerians didn't like Jews either. Like actually, it's kind of like a Romeo and Juliet situation, or if you've ever watched the VeggieTales episode about this story, it kind of like illustrates that rivalry. Anyone? No? I watched that this week. It was very helpful for the study of this passage. But Luke 9, it shows us this too. Just a chapter earlier, we see this rivalry between Samaritans and Jews. It says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. So the Samaritans are like, Jesus, you're a Jew. You're not, you're not welcome in our town. So then verse 54, when, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want to tell us the fire to come down from heaven and consume them? A little bit of an overreaction, right? Like, hey, can Jesus come hang out at your house? No. Send the fire down. These guys aren't cool. And then it says, but he turned and rebuked them. See, Jews, Samaritans, there's this rivalry there. And if, if we were honest with ourselves, are there not people in our life because we're different that there's an unwillingness for us to be compassionate, to be helpful, to be loving towards them. But again, we'll get to that more later. Because you see, look at this, this Jewish guy who's on the side of the road, um, half dead. If he had been awake enough, he probably would have pushed away the Samaritan and not accepted his help. But the Samaritan had compassion. And I listened to another sermon on this passage this week that defined compassion, this Greek word, as emotion you feel when someone you love is in pain. And that even though the Samaritans and Jews were rivals, that we, any human being, unborn human beings, that when we see them in pain, we should respond with an emotion. Like a just gut, pain, feeling what they feel. Verse 34, the story continues. So we've got this Samaritan in compassion. It says, he went up to the man, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, 
which is two days wages or enough for 24 days of food. So he like puts down his credit card and he's like put down a month's rent on me for this guy. And he gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, whatever more you spend, I will repay when you come back. Which of these three, uh, and so that's the end of the story and it ends just with Jesus going back to the lawyer. He says, which of these three do you think, excuse me, think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And so like a lot of interactions between Jesus and people, we don't see what happens next. We don't see if this lawyer responds by loving people and being compassionate. We don't see if the lawyer, kind of like the rich young ruler, hardens his heart and says, no, I'm unwilling to help people. I just want to know and understand what's right, what's true. It's all about knowledge. We don't know. But what we can ask ourselves as we come to the end of this passage in this story is to go inward to ourselves and and ask us, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond when we're confronted about compassion, that we are called to compassion? And so if in your heart you feel a sense of conviction or a desire to respond to Jesus' call to love your neighbor, we're going to spend the rest of our time considering and asking the question, what does compassion look like for me? What does this look like in my life? And I want this to be practical for us to know how we can take steps towards this even this week. The compassion for me looks like, first, I won't walk away. That unlike the priest and the Levite, they walked away from the man in need. They walked away from the road of compassion. But compassion means that I'm not going to walk away from my neighbor. I'm going to run towards my neighbor and help him in need. And we especially know this when we understand Jesus' definition of a neighbor. Right? Because he confronted the lawyer's definition. The lawyer just wanted it to be friends, family, Israelites. But Jesus defined a neighbor as this. Anyone we come across... And there's an opportunity to extend grace, love, compassion, and generosity. And that is the definition of what a neighbor is. And the problem is that's so countercultural today. Like in 2019, your neighbors aren't even your neighbors, the people who live next to you. They're not. We're not neighbors anymore with the people who live next to us. You know who our neighbors are? Our neighbors are the people who are just like us. Our neighbors are the people who live alongside us in subdivisions Uh, socially, politically, theologically, economically, racially, in the same stage of life or age. And we have so limited our view of what a neighbor is. Like we just view our neighbors as the people who are just like us. But Jesus doesn't say a neighbor is like that. You know, I see this really on display on, uh, on Facebook. Can we talk about Facebook? You guys okay with that? We talk about it quite a bit. It's like one of those things that We all do it, and we know that it's kind of like a bad thing. It's like eating at McDonald's. But on Facebook, I was just thinking about this the other day. Do you ever have that moment where you randomly think about someone you grew up with, or you went to grade school with, you went to high school with, or college, and you're like, oh, I wonder what that person's up to you. Go and look up up on Facebook, and you're like, oh, that's what they look like now. Cool, that's that's the person they marry, and that's what their kids look like. That's what they're doing for a living. That's kind of cool. And then that's kind of it. But I just found it funny that often I'll think of someone that I haven't seen or talked to for years, and I'll go on Facebook, but we're Facebook friends. And I'm like, that's weird. We're friends. I haven't seen any of their stuff ever in my feed. And the reason this is, like this is crazy, but Facebook has an algorithm that only shows us people who are like us. 
it only shows us the people who are in the, sa- the same as us geographically, the same as us uh, in, in our interests and activities, the same as us in the stage of life, the same as us in like the people we talk to the most. Like, like it's, it's, a, it's a thing. And, um, and it's, and it's kind of crazy. But the problem is, is that we let that affect the way that we live. Like it's not just an algorithm being fed to us. But this is kind of how we live our lives. Like we, we don't even have an opportunity to avoid the road of compassion because we're so far removed from that road. We're just in this bubble of people who are just like us. And if we're not careful, we can allow algorithms and other things to affect us and to remove us completely from the opportunity to be compassionate. And so we need to walk back towards the road. So that means like practically when we're, when we're in the grocery store, when we're driving down the road, when we're at school, when we're in the workplace, just getting our faces off of our screens and, and thinking less about ourselves and really just looking around for other people in need. It's as practical and simple as that. Proverbs 3 says it this way, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. That we are walking around with goodness to share whether it's simply just the gospel, whether it's the testimony of what God's done in our life, whether it's things that God has blessed us with to give, whether it is things that God is calling us to sacrificially give, and we need to stop withholding it to ourselves and begin looking for people to, to extend that goodness to. The second thing that uh, compassion looks like for me is I make it personal. It's personal, it's for me, for me to do, for me to look like what it is in my life. That the call to love our neighbors is a mandate not given to the church, but given to each follower of Jesus. It's, giving not, it's given not corporately to us as a whole, but to us as individuals. And I know that kind of sounds like semantics because the church is built up of a body of believers. But this is a call uh, uh, not for the mission of the church, but for the mission of the believer. That we see in the Bible that there is a clear role and mission of the church. There's a clear mandate for the church, a vertical one, to glorify God in in our gathering and in our worship, to preach the word of God and to make disciples. And the truth is, is if we're doing that well and if we're going after what God has called the church to be, then the result is as the body gathers and then when we scatter, that all of you will go and we'll get our hands dirty and we'll serve people and we'll be the hands and feet of Jesus. That we should come here and hear the word of God, receive God's character, be filled with the spirit, experience his presence, be fired up and to leave this place able to do what God has called us to do. But if you think about this, when, we, when our church gathers on a weekend, if there's 3,000 people who come, how amazing is it that when 3,000 people leave this place, that even more and more people have good neighbors to love and care for them. That's awesome. And that's a call for you. That's a call for you. For you to ask yourself, what personally, practically, does it look like for me to pursue compassionate ministry in my life? I was really convicted by this quote from a pastor, J.D. Greer, this week. He said, fruitfulness from the stage can cover up a lack of personal fruitfulness. That just kind of hit me because whether it's compassionate ministry and kind of community-based ministry or even if it's making disciples that in a church like our size, you know, you see God at work videos or you can hear how God's moving through soul care in different people's lives and be like, man, God is moving in our church. That's amazing. But we should be asking ourselves, man, is God moving and using and bearing fruit in my life, in my ministry? 
Listen, we want to celebrate what God is doing. I'm not saying we can't do that, but we need to be a part of the game. We need to be serving. We need to be going out and loving our neighbors. Practically, what does it look like for me to love my neighbor? Ask ourselves that. The third thing that compassion looks like for me is I'm willing to take risks. I'm willing to take risks for the sake of compassion. And I can say I just turned 26 a few weeks ago. And for the most part through my life, I've been on the receiving end of compassion and generosity and so much that I don't deserve. Like I can just think of seasons when we've needed a place to live and many people have opened up their house as a place for us to stay, that people have uh, given us things like cars and just sacrificially given that even um, when, when we got married for our wedding that we uh, were pretty limited on our resources and we had a group of people who gathered up stuff and, and gave us help to do that. And, and I've experienced that, it's amazing. And it's something that I aspire to, something that challenges me. Like I've received generosity and compassion how can I give it? But sacrificial, risk-taking compassion isn't just something I've received or something I aspire to, but it's something that I witness almost on a weekly basis in our church. Like, I see this all the time, that more than you know, there are people in our church who have people who don't have a place to live staying in their homes, that there are people that God has given much to, and so that they've given much to others because they know that God's given them a lot to steward and to love their neighbors, that there are people who serve many ways in our community through things like foster care and Love, Inc. and international aid and rescue missions and, you know, people who have medical abilities in our church who spend their free time serving the community with their medical abilities. It's happening. And I, and I love this even that as we preach this message that it's not like a, hey, church, we're all doing terrible at this. Like, you need to, you're the worst. No, this is like, a, it's happening. But we really should ask ourselves personally, man, am I taking risks for the sake of compassion. Because here's, here's what risks look like. I think these risks for compassion mean three things. Risks means generous sacrifice. That when we take risks for compassion, it's simultaneously something that is uh, meaningful and big to the person who's receiving it, but it's also something that is sacrificial and difficult, but necessary for us to give. It's something big, some, it's a sacrifice. But risks also means this, Risks means potential disappointment. But sometimes when we love our neighbors and look to do compassionate, merciful ministry to our communities, we're thinking about what we're going to get out of it. Or is there going to be a tax break? Or as a result of my service spent, you know, I'm expecting the person I helped to become a certain kind of person. But the truth is, I've, I've observed this in, in some other people in, in the life of our church, who the, the people that they've been most compassionate and generous and gracious and giving to are the people who burned them and hurt them the most. Because when we approach loving our neighbors, it's not what am I going to get out of it or what's, you know, what's going to happen in their life. We're just called to love, not to judge the motives of hearts and not to protect ourselves in the process. And third, risk means gospel preaching. That when we do compassionate ministry, we take the risk of not just meeting a physical, immediate, urgent need, but we also aim to meet their eternal, spiritual need for a savior. And that as we uh, bring good gifts, good service, good resources, we can't separate that from bringing the good news of Jesus. Both of those are fiercely important. And then uh, the last thing that compassion looks like in our lives is this. I love like I've been loved. 
when I approach being compassionate to others and go down the road of compassion, I love like I have been loved. And I was thinking about this just again of, of all the generosity that, that I benefited from and received in our lives. And again, um, I don't know if you have this, but at our wedding, I was just amazed by the generosity and the sacrifices that people made in the gifts that they gave. I was like, well, I never expected to receive this much. And that's just been something that's really stuck with me and challenged me. Like when I give we- like wedding gifts, I want to give something good. And, and, and that's honestly hard for me sometimes to do that, to be generous and to... Um, really bless them. But like it has blessed me so much and that's challenged me. And I think that similar principle of pride applies to all our love and compassion. And the truth is, is that all of us has an example of compassion and love in our lives. But the question is, is it a good example or a bad example? There are some of us who have great examples of compassion, whether it's our parents or our grandparents or people close to us, that they've just embodied what it looks like to take those risks, to make it personal, to not walk away from situations where people need help, but to rush in. And that's amazing. Look at that example and aspire to it, pursue it, and and give what you've received. But some of us, others in the room, uh, we have bad examples of that in our lives. Honestly, as we think about our parents or grandparents or what we've seen around us, that there's been a spirit of stinginess and a spirit of selfishness and a spirit of only caring about ourselves. And I don't say this to excuse you in your lack of compassion or to blame those examples for your lack of compassion. But for us to consider, what am I walking in with as an example and and how's that affecting my life? Because whether you have a good or a bad example that all of us can come, we can love like I've been loved, not just in human terms, but we can love like we've been loved by God. That 1 John 4 says this, We love because he first loved us. That if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he hasn't seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That if we have received the love and the grace and the compassion and the life from Jesus, that we give that to others. That before we ask ourselves, what does compassion look like through me? What does compassion look like in my life? How can I serve and love? We need to ask the question, how has compassion uh, played a part to me? How have I received compassion? And for you to know that, that God loves you, that God sent his son to the cross to make the greatest sacrificial act of compassion in all of history. That you and me were born without a hope, destined to receive the due penalty of our sin, death, and Jesus came to rescue us like the man on the side of the road and to give us a new hope and to give us life and to give us love and to give us all that we need. And so as we come, before we uh, put ourselves in the place of the Good Samaritan, we need to put ourselves in the place of the man on the side of the road. Because when we recognize that Jesus came to us as the greatest Samaritan to rescue us and to give us all we need, then we can come and step in and embody the Good Samaritan, not doing it out of our own strength, not doing it out of, uh, of the, the earthly materials and resources that we have, like this is about us. But we aim to be compassionate people, going down the, the road of compassion that's a dangerous road worth walking down because Jesus did it for us. And when we do it, it's a response to all that we've received from him. So let me just pray for us as we aim to to live that out and to take steps towards it. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for how timely this message is. 
I just pray that we would receive that and know that, that your timing is perfect. Your ways are perfect. You are sovereign and in control. And so today as we hear this message, I just pray your word over us that today if we hear his voice, we would not harden our hearts in rebellion, but instead we would search our hearts and our lives for the, for the ways and areas where compassion has been lacking and, and to repent of those and to bring those to the foot of the cross and to begin to take steps towards people and helping them and loving them and caring for them because you did the same for us. Father, I pray that we would, um, yeah, that we would pursue that because of Jesus, that we would not pursue it for our gain or pursue it for, you know, medals or how, the glory that comes from helping people, but that we would help and serve and love people because you've done it for us and you call us to do the same. I pray that you'd help us to do that. We pray this all in Jesus' name.